So my name is Ben Grist. I, I work at the church here as a bit of a ministry experience intern. But yeah, so the, today's topic is thinking about can I trust the Bible? And I would say, isn't it interesting to start off with that the Bible is by far the best-selling book of all history, and yet it's also the most controversial book of all history as well. Obviously, we as Christians, we see it as God's holy word, and it has had such an impact on the world throughout history. But how do we know that the Bible is true? Isn't it just a collection of stories or myths to some? How can we test if it's trustworthy? And how is it relevant to us today, the fact that it was written about 2,000 years ago? One time whilst I was on mission in Malta, uh, I came across a student and we ended up having quite a long conversation. Um, But basically, as soon as the topic came up about Jesus, her immediate response was to say, oh, how can you believe in Jesus? Where the stories that were written about him were just made up hundreds of years later. Dan Brown claimed in his best-selling book in the Da Vinci Code that the church deliberately, they suppressed the most reliable sources and early sources of Jesus' existence. And actually that those sources told a very different story of the Jesus that we hear about in the Bible. Even though his work was fiction, actually that doesn't stop a lot of people from having a lot of doubt, casting a lot of doubt as to whether or not um, there was any kind of truth in that and whether or not the Gospels are truly reliable as well. In fact, uh, a famous biologist and avid atheist, Richard Dawkins, he loves to say this, and he suggested that the only difference between the Gospels and the Da Vinci Code is that the Gospels are ancient fiction and the Da Vinci Code is modern fiction. I don't know whether you believe that or not, but actually that's something that we're going to look at in a bit. So how do we respond to these claims? And how do we think critically to this question of can I trust the Bible? So let's start off by going over a brief introduction and overview of the Bible to help us. Hopefully we know a little bit about the Bible wherever we come from. But the name the Bible comes from the ancient Greek word biblios, which means literally books. And it quite accurately describes what the Bible is. It's a collection or a library of 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament, excluding extra um, books as well that are sometimes added. The Bible was written over the course of 1,500 years by about 40 different authors from various different cultural backgrounds and at different time periods. It was written in three different languages, uh, Hebrew and Greek primarily and also Aramaic. And it was written in three continents. Asia, Europe, and Africa. But yet, despite this seemingly uh, incredible variety of authors and the time spans and the different cultural backgrounds, there is total and complete unanimity and consistency throughout the Bible, which I think is incredible. So imagine today if we tried to kind of compile together uh, volumes from 40 different authors who had been writing ever since the year 500 AD. Uh, I reckon we'd kind of see quite a lot of different opinions and kind of different viewpoints. And yet there's complete, uh, con- complete consistency and unity within that, which I think is incredible. As Christians, we call the Bible God's word. And although God didn't physically write it, instead we know that God worked through everyday, everyday people like you and me. But they were inspired by him to write what they want, he wanted them to write. When we say this word inspired, as Andy mentioned earlier, this is taken from the Bible and literally means God breathed as he breathed the words into the authors of the Bible. 
And the Bible makes some pretty distinctive claims, some hard truth claims that we have to take into account. For example, it claims that God exists, which is quite a big one to start with. It claims that he has chosen to communicate to us through the Bible. It claims that Jesus claimed to be the son of God, God in flesh, and that the only way that humans can actually be saved is through him. And that's aside from the fact that actually we talk about Jesus dying and resurrecting, which is a, a, a big part of our theology. So really, I'd like to ask the question, is the Bible true? To determine if the Bible is true, we need to do some tests, test the reliability in the sense of whether the content, the ideas, the history that are mentioned can be trusted, or whether it's uh, just historical errors, factual errors, whether they contradict each other. Many people have tried to claim that the Bible does contradict itself, and you might see various infographics online. But actually, that's usually when they take the text out of the context. And when you take text out of context, you're left with a con. When you take a text out of context, you're left with a con. So to make a mature and critical approach, we can look at the actual evidence for the Bible. And this can take many different forms. First of all, we can look at the physical evidence. For example, uh, the numbers of manuscripts, the different copies of different manuscripts, and how throughout history uh, the accuracy of these manuscripts have been transmitted over time. We'll also look a bit further about this in the bit when we look at the Gospels and we'll see some facts and figures about that as an example. But what we ultimately find is that the records are incredibly accurate and that they, all these minor differences that, that people talk about sometimes, they're called variants and actually they never suggest anything to do with a difference in um, Christian theology or ideas or opinions. Usually these variants are just grammatical mistakes or spelling mistakes that the copiers have made but they never change the actual fundamental beliefs of Christianity from these variants. <coughs> Next up, another area of physical evidence that we can look at is the use of external sources. How, for example, how do external sources relate to these biblical texts? How do authors who are writing at the same time of these events, what do they share? And do they share some unbiased opinions or not? And also archaeology as well. What are the archaeological founds that we found to, to back up all of the, the historic events that happened in the Bible? Well, again, the evidence is incredible for how archaeology time and time again uh, actually supports and proves that the Bible does correspond perfectly to historical reality. Other evidence we can look at is what the Bible actually claims, whether what it said in, in the Bible is actually coherent with consistent thought. We mentioned about this briefly early, but despite the fact that the Bible was written so many uh, years ago by authors such a long time, it is completely consistent and does not contradict any of its other ideas or claims. Over 2,000 years, this Christian worldview has stayed robust and grounded throughout history, where we see so many other worldviews and uh, political ideas that they come and they fall because there's, there's some flaw in the argument. But that's not so with Christianity. Also, when looking at consistencies in the Bible, an interesting point to mention is about the sheer number of prophecies and fulfilled prophecies that uh, we come across. More so, I would say, than any other manuscripts. Just one example. For example, execution by crucifixion when Jesus was put on the cross. That hadn't been thought up until about 300 BC. And yet Isaiah, 400 years beforehand... And King David, 700 years before 
as well. Both described in the Bible how the one would eventually come and he would die by crucifixion. But they didn't just stop there. They didn't just stop by saying that he would do this. Actually, they went on to give exact details. It's incredible, some of the stuff that's written in Isaiah, for example, about how he, his clothes would be gambled for. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, exactly. And this is, you remember, years and years before it actually happened. He would die a poor man's death. He would be crucified between two thieves. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. His hands, feet and side would be pierced and yet his bones wouldn't be broken. And though he would take the sin of the world onto himself and that he would rise again uh, from the dead in three days. And this goes on and on and on. In fact, over, uh, in terms of the Old Testament, there was over 300 prophecies just about Jesus alone. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. So I thought I'd kind of humour you a bit. I studied maths at university. And mathematically speaking, the odds of something like this happening, I mean, the odds of anyone fulfilling uh, a prophecy like this is, is staggering. But to put it into some context, uh, one person fulfilling maybe eight of these prophecies, the, the statistics would suggest that that's one in a hundred quadrillion or one in a hundred thousand, 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 thousand. And that's eight prophecies. The prophecy of one person fulfilling 48 prophecies would be 1 in 10 to the 57. And I'm not even going to attempt to say that number. But that's roughly the equivalent of winning the lottery 26 times in a row, which I'm sure everyone's done from time to time, right? Even if you try to fulfill most of these prophecies, actually some of these prophecies were about uh, where, where he would be born and uh, the pe- kind of people that he'd meet. And those kind of things you can't really like, make up. You can't really decide those things. But the probability of one person fulfilling over 300 prophecies, just like Jesus did, would only be for Jesus. Because uh, I guess it would probably be the equivalent of the same person winning the lottery every week for three years in a row. And I just think that's incredible. But anyway, let's, let's have a little bit of a, a case study, a practical example looking at the reliability of the New Testament, in particular, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So without going into too much depth, we're just going to briefly look at this. And what do the Gospels actually claim? Well, they have central claims about Jesus being the Son of God, claiming to be the one to save us from our sins, who died and then came back to life and performed so many miracles. So if these are false, then realistically, the whole Christian faith doesn't really have much to stand on. But if these Gospels prove to be true and reliable, then without a shadow of doubt, we can conclude that Jesus is who he said he was and that he is. And that we should start to take faith seriously if we're not already. So for historians, in order to determine if a document is historically reliable or not, they usually use three tests uh, to see and apply to what we'll do for the New Testament to see whether or not this historical Uh, document is really reliable and this is the bibliographical test the internal test and the external test and I mean there's a little bit of leeway within these different tests but they all kind of follow the same basic principle so firstly the bibliographical test this seeks to determine how many manuscript copies we have of the document and how far removed are they from when they were originally written the originals and so I've got a bit of a table here which looks a bit uh Yeah, there's a lot of information on there, but I'm going to basically explain it to you. But basically, what you can see from this table is there are a lot of ancient historical works here. When they were written, the earliest copy 
And then what was the time span between this earliest copy, um, at, or when they were written, and the earliest copy? And then how many copies we have? Most of these uh, historical uh, works, which are completely irreputed as to their reliability, almost always have just a handful of copies, 5, 10, 15, 20 there. And for most of them, they're usually about 1,000 years. The copies that we have are about 1,000 years after the original was written. So the likelihood of it being very reliable is very, very unlikely. But to compare this to the New Testament, which is right at the bottom here, we have over 5,000 completed Greek manuscripts and over 2,400, 2,500 partial copies. And that's not dating 1,000 years after the original is written. Usually it's less than 100 years. To think that the Gospels were written between 40 and 100 AD. And we have, uh, we have texts, we have manuscripts from 125 AD. This is a big deal. For example, because... When you look at something like Homer's Iliad, which here, it's got, uh, it was written 9, 900 BC. The earliest copy is 500 BC. That's 500 years that we don't have that any, any kind of copies for. And we only have 643 copies. But no one would question the reliability of those, those copies. And yet the New Testament is t- a tenth of the amount of years and over 40 times as many copies that we have. So by that logic, the New Testament, the Gospels that were written, actually, they would be definitely identical and definitely reliable to what they were originally written, the originals. Next up, we can look at the external test. The external test, oh, there you go, there's another example, and you can see, again, it's it's, it's staggering the amount of uh, difference in that. The external test. The external test seeks to ask whether the material, uh, the external material to the document in question, and whether archaeologies and writings from people uh, around the same kind of time period confirms its reliability. Well, the New Testament has been remarkably confirmed time and time again by external evidence, and this is not to say there are no problems, but to the unbiased observer, little doubt can be cast on the statement, for example, about archaeology because it is so reliable. For example, just to name a few, well-known Jewish and Roman historians at the time wrote and mentioned about Jesus and the effect of Christianity at that time in history. For example, Thallus wrote about Greek history from the time of the Trojan War up to his present day, which was 52 AD. And he talks about Christ's crucifixion. Tacitus, he was writing about uh, Rome, the history of Rome, uh, around about the same sort of time, a little bit after, in uh, 110 AD. And he also wrote about Jesus. And he, these people are completely unbiased. They didn't have any faith at all. They weren't Christians. But it was history that needed to be talked about. So did Suetonius. He was talking about the 12 Caesars at the time. And he also talked about Jesus. If anything, they, they, they would have definitely not had an, a, a biased opinion. But if anything, they would have been against the teachings that Jesus had to say. Also, Pliny the Secondist, which many people know of as Pliny the Younger. He was a governor in ancient minor, and over the course of two years in the first century, he was sending letters back and forth to the emperor at the time, asking with how to deal with these Christians. And he spoke of Jesus and Christians meeting together, well, Jesus and Jews meeting together in incredible ways. But I'm going to read you one example, and that is from a Jewish historian 
uh, around this sort of time who, if anything, would have been completely opposed to Jesus' teachings. And his name was Josephus. Some of you may have heard of him before. And I'm just going to read an extract. This is from Josephus and his historical writings. Or from the antiquities of the Jews. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to both him, uh, him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had commended him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold. And uh, the, these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named to him, are not extinct as to this day. It's also interesting that among the uh, early Christians, early Christian churches uh, in the early centuries, a number of scholars quoted the New Testament as well. And amazingly, they quoted the whole entire New Testament so that every single verse of the 27 books of the New Testament is quoted mm -hmm. by the scholars with the exception of only 11 verses. And these completely match up to the New Testament that we have today. So finally, thinking about the internal test, we've already talked about uh, this previously, previously, but the internal test asks whether the document itself claims to be actual history and whether it's written by eyewitnesses. We don't really have time to go into this a whole lot right now, but there's so much information and there's some books on here as well which talk about all of these in a lot more detail as well. I'd say that as much as some of these other reasons are powerful to suggest that the Bible is true, I would say that the most powerful reason is found in Jesus. If the four Gospels prove to be true, then consequently, Jesus himself becomes substantial evidence in himself and support for the other Gospels. But not also the Gospels, also the whole New Testament. And in fact, he becomes support also for the Old Testament as well. And Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18 says it so well, where it says, Do not think, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. But what about manuscript evidence for the Old Testament? Again, we don't have time to go into this right now, but if, you, if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, then for example, these clearly show that our modern copies are incredibly accurate as to what the originals were. So just one other area to think about. What do the manuscripts say? We've been able to clarify that the manuscripts are reliable and true to what they say. But how can I trust that the translation of the manuscripts into English are true? Surely the translators could have just chosen whatever they wanted to and written it down and chosen what they didn't want to write and not written that down. Well, there are many, many defences for this. And unlike other religions, where there's only one person who's allowed to translate or know the true version, these thousands of Greek manuscripts that I was talking about earlier from the Bible are not locked away. Actually, they're, almost all of them are made publicly that people can see and go and visit. They're on display. You can actually go online and visit the exact location of the documents. For example, even there are some manuscripts in the British Library and the National History Museum, if you ever wanted to go down there. 
Here, there are some manuscripts that have been made public and available for everyone online to read and decipher. And two of the oldest manuscripts that are completely online is the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. And they're both available online. I'll just show you. I've, uh, this is one website that I use quite often, the Codex Sinaiticus. And you can actually go on. You can go on every single manuscript and you can go through and translate it if you want. I mean, they do have a translation here. The tra these translations actually... Everything is made clearly, clearly viewable so that you can see, okay? I'm not going to translate anything right now, don't worry. Oh, thank you, man. I could later if you, if you want to. <laughs> but next, translation. Why are there so many different translations of the Bible? Why are some people always attesting to certain translations and won't go anywhere near other translations? What's the big deal? Why are there so many? Well, translating Greek, for example, ancient Greek doesn't have the same order system. Uh, as we do in English. So part of the challenge straight away is uh, to try and work out the exact structure or order, order of the, the sentence. But also when you're trying to translate particular words, the direct translation of the word may not really make sense outside of the culture. For example, there's at least five different words for love used in the New Testament in Greek. And so how do we translate each of those different five words into English if we've only got one word for it in English? This adds extra complexity as to we've got to think what is the best word to use to emphasise these different um, translations. The most popular translations today are the NIV, New International Version, ESV, English Standard Version, NLT, uh, New Living Translation, um, and NKGV, the new King James Version. But actually, there are so many different translations, and they've all been there for a particular purpose. They're all very similar in their translation, but some focus more on trying to get the translations word-for-word word accurate, whereas others try to focus also on keeping the accuracy of the word, but also trying to ensure that it's a bit easier to read uh, for the reader in question. And there's a handy little diagram there as well. Depending on your literary ability, there are also paraphrased versions like the Message or simpler version like the New International Reader's Version, which was actually made for, for people who uh, struggled to read or were dyslexic as well. And I find that really useful sometimes to understand scripture in a bit of a different perspective, a different light. But finally, 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 noticing that the Bible is true and trustworthy and reliable is one thing. But that doesn't mean that it's relevant today. We still know that it was written 2,000 years ago, so why do I need to trust that it's relevant to me today? Well, as a kid, I used to love building things. First it was Lego, then it was Connects, and a few different other things. I used to love creating things with like wood and cardboard and everything else, and eventually that would turn into IKEA furniture, eventually, anyway. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in a, a time where instructions came with the Lego blocks, but you never really used it because it was much more fun to throw away the instructions and just make your own creation with the blocks instead. And I think many of us, that was similar for us, many of us. And I think even today, when we're putting together many pieces of furniture, actually a lot of us might throw away the instructions before then calling for help a few hours later or something. I know James and I were making a football table the other day, so we can explain that as well. But with the Bible, it's quite easy to disregard it as irrelevant. We're already living our lives, for many of us, pretty nicely. So why would we need a manual, an instruction manual, to tell us about our lives? Well, everything we've heard today, 
we know that the Bible is so much more than just a book. It's God's holy word. And it's written for us, not only for what we were, but for what Jesus has done for us and actually how we can live life to the very full. As we discussed a few weeks ago as well, God didn't give us Jesus and the Bible in order for us to be confined or limited in life. Instead, to be able to live life in an even greater way to the very full. And the Bible is our instruction manual for how to know this abundant life, true freedom, to love our lives with purpose and meaning instead of what it may have been before. The Bible is our instruction manual, and a great way to remember this is with a little acronym, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Because the Bible is an instruction manual. The Bible talks about issues relating to literally everything, sociology, economics, uh, politics, biology, physics, zoology, philosophy, homotiology, theology, eschatology, epistemology, a load of ologies that I don't even know, and that's just to name a few. But if it tells us about all of these things, then don't you think it would have something to say about our situation today? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. So today, we've concluded that we can trust the manuscripts are true and accurately documented what happened at those times. We can trust that the manuscripts all agree with one another and portray the same ultimate message. We can trust that the manuscripts have been translated accurately from the original languages into our current language, into English. And we can trust that these words are of central importance and relevance in our lives today. So how should we respond? As Christians, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, and it challenges us, each of us, to be ready to make a defence to anyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us. This whole field that we've been talking about in all of these different evening sessions, these big questions, is part of a bigger field of study called apologetics. And it's important for each of us to be able to at least be able to make it a defence for Christ. We don't have to be an expert but we do need to know the basics. And that's what's really useful about these big questions. So if someone does come up to you and asks you maybe something you don't know about Christianity, uh, uh, an area that you haven't thought about, maybe one of these big questions, or maybe you come across a passage in the Bible that you're a bit confused. Um, I mean, what, what, what does this mean? Some practical steps I would suggest is, first of all, make sure to, to read the Bible, read the whole Bible, and read the passage, not just the verse in particular, but help to see in context by reading around the different verse, if it's a verse in question. Pray about the passage. Ask the Spirit to speak to you as you read the passage. Ask God to reveal to you what it means and what does he want to say to you through it. Also, reading commentaries. There's loads of stuff online, further reading readings about all of these kind of questions that we're thinking about, but also passages there are commentaries on every single verse of the bible so if there's ever a question that you do have about something you come across then there's so much stuff so much material that you can read about as well and then again there's some more information about that in the books over there but also asking our church family asking the people that we meet if we're in a connect group or here on a sunday evening in our discussions that we're going to have in a minute asking all these things and bringing up these questions i'm really struggling with this i don't know what's going on can you help but finally, I just want to say that 
it's almost impossible to know everything about the Bible. It's, it's, it's not all things are knowable by humans. Take the Trinity, for example. I mean, it's such a hard concept to try and imagine or try to try and rationalize. But that's one of the great things about God. The fact that he is beyond our comprehension, and yet he is so knowable, he is intimately knowable. And I think it's a really important thing to remember that actually if someone comes to you with a question you don't know, it's okay to say, I don't know, and I'll find out later on or something, you know? But if you came today, and maybe you've been a bit unsure of of whether or not you trust the Bible, whether or not you, you believe it, or whether or not you even have a faith, then in light of what we've heard today, You've heard the evidence, and one way you can respond is by actually believing it and saying, yes, I do want to read the Bible. I do want to, I do want to get to know a bit more about it. But may, if that's you, maybe God is calling you today to, to yeah, really affirm that and say, actually, I do believe these things. If you believe that Jesus really was the Son of God, that he came to earth, he died for our sins and rose again, then that's all you need to really believe fundamentally in order to give your life to Jesus. And then you have this opportunity to start this journey, following God, following, following what he says in his word and through what he tells us. And it's an incredible, incredible journey. Thank you.